0: Well, today we're gonna continue in our series uh, that we've been studying from the book of Acts, and today we're gonna look at a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached in Athens. So go ahead and take your Bibles if you have one, turn to chapter 17. While you're doing that, I wanna offer you a quick review as well as to provide you with the proper setting because I believe it will help you to better understand Paul's sermon. And, 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 and the sermon we're not gonna to get to till the end, so just bear with me, but have your Bible open because there's gonna be scriptures we're gonna read. If you'll remember the last time that we left Paul, he had just been released from a Philippian jail. In fact, the last few verses of chapter 16 tell us that the magistrates in Philippi had made a huge mistake because they later found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And as Roman citizens, both Paul and Silas had rights. And one of those rights had been ignored, actually had been literally trampled upon. You see, Roman law clearly stated that it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. And uh, remember, as I also told you last week, the Philippians were proud to be Romans. And so the magistrates wanted to do what was right. They wanted to do what was proper by them. So once they realized the error that they had made, oh, sorry you've been beat within inches of your life. But once they realized their error, they immediately apologized to Paul and Silas regarding the way that they had been treated. But it's interesting to note that even though they pretty much tripped over themselves in haste to apologize to them, they continued to beg them to leave the city. Why was that? Because they didn't want them to cause any further disturbance like had already happened. So after uh, paying one more visit to uh, Lydia and the other members of the church there in, in Philippi, that's exactly what they did. They left town. Now it's also important to point out that Luke's writing goes back to saying they instead of we which indicates that Paul and Silas had indeed left, but Luke stayed in Philippi, and I think Timothy did as well for a short time, because the the two had not been asked to leave the city by the magistrates. So they, they remained there in order to help shepherd that new church, promising to join Paul and Silas as soon as possible. And this brings us up to chapter 17. In verse one, It tells us after leaving Philippi that they arrived in the capital city of Thessalonica, which would have been a three-day journey on foot. Now, as I reflect on the flogging that Paul and Silas had received in Philippi, and no doubt the weakened state that they were in, I am shocked that they were able to do this. I don't see how they could have physically endured a trip like that unless they were on horseback. And it doesn't tell us, but perhaps the Christians in Philippi provided horses for them, I'm not sure. I think an even better assumption would be that the magistrates who had made that big mistake may have offered it up to them as, as a way to say we're sorry for the way you were mistreated. Again, we don't know for sure, but in any case, Paul and Silas decided to journey all the way to Thessalonica. Why would that be? Well, it was the capital city. And they realized that by starting a church there, it would be beneficial in spreading the faith into the surrounding areas and towns. So when they arrived, Paul followed his, uh, his typical church starting formula by going directly to the synagogue. And for the next three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them regarding the scriptures. What that means is, is he took the copies of the Old Testament scrolls from the shelves and then he would read the prophecies that proved Jesus Christ was indeed the long awaited Messiah. Then Paul told them how Jesus had died on the cross for the sins of all mankind and how he arose from the dead. And all the while he was showing them how this was all foretold in the Jewish scriptures. And his tactic worked because if you look at Acts 17, verse four, it says this, and some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So good things were happening. But unfortunately, along with it came some bad because when the other Jews saw that so many in their, their synagogue was embracing the Christian faith, they became jealous and they formed sort of a, a lynch mob. And this, this mob of, of angry people wandered around the streets trying to find Paul and Silas, but they couldn't find them. And so they went to the home where they were staying and they found its owner and they dragged him into court. His name was Jason and the judge forced him to post his personal property as bond promising that Paul and Silas would leave their town, and under the cover of darkness, that's exactly what they did. But before we leave Thessalonica, I want you to look at Acts 17, six, because it lists the exact wording of the charges that were made against Paul and Silas by the leaders of the mob. It says, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And I gotta say that I love that statement. Because it was an unintentional compliment, if you think about it. I mean, these Jews were saying that two middle-aged men had been able to turn the world upside down all by themselves. Well, that would have been no small accomplishment for two mere mortals. But I also love this statement because it has a ring of ironic truth to it. You see, Paul and Silas were upsetting the world, but instead of turning it upside down, folks, they were turning it right side up. The world, as you were recalled, was turned upside down back in the Garden of Eden when sin and disobedience entered the heart of the first humans, Adam and Eve. And as a result of their sinful action, this became a fallen world where unfairness and wrongdoing and sickness and death are commonplace. But then, in the fullness of time, praise God, He sent Jesus. And He took the sin of all mankind upon his own sinless self. And as he hung on that cross and he took the punishment that was ours and he died in our place and then he conquered death and he conquered the grave and in doing so, he made it possible for all things to be set straight. So for the past 2000 plus years, anyone who has called upon his name, anyone who has repented of his or her sin, has been forgiven. But they've also gotten back what Adam and Eve lost, and that was a personal relationship with our Creator. They've been made right with God. You've been made right with God. I've been made right with God. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, Christians like Paul and Silas followed his command and they shared this wonderful news of the gospel all over our fallen upside down world and in doing so, they began to turn the world right side up again. Where there was darkness, now there was light. Where there was hatred, now there was love. Where there was anxiety, they brought a peace that passes all understanding. Where there was sadness, they brought laughter. And where there was bondage, they brought freedom. And where there was the fear of death, they brought the good news of eternal life. And while proclaiming this message, they did take a world that was troubled and tangled and they turned it right side up. And Christians like you and I, we are called to do the very same thing. And that's good news. Why? <laughs> because I think we would all agree that our world needs riding now, huh? Is that a pretty obvious thought for everybody in this place? I mean, as you watch the news, does it, does it, does it seem to you as if our culture has things backwards? That that our culture has things completely upside down? Think about it. Should this be a place where more people are enslaved in our modern day culture than at any other time in the history of the world? Does that seem right side up to you? Should the world be a place where one country feeds its pets better and more food than other countries feed their children. Does that seem right side up to you? Should the world be a place where sexual perversion and immorality is actually embraced and celebrated and and, and esteemed? Does that seem right side up to you? Should the world be a place where people die without any hope of life after death? I mean, does it make sense to you that human beings who alone have a concept of eternity would just become worm food when we die? Does that seem right side up to you? Look, I could go on and on because it's obvious this world that we live in has gone backwards and it is upside down, but it is our calling as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to share the gospel of, the, of Jesus, because that is the only way that we're gonna write our world, is to write the human heart. And the only way to write a human heart is to invite Jesus into it. Well, as I said, this uh, Jewish angry Jewish mob, they, they were upset that Paul and Silas were upsetting their world. So they forced them to leave Thessalonica. And so Paul and Silas's next stop was a little village of Berea. And where they arrived, Paul went to the synagogue. That's what he always did. And he used the Old Testament scriptures to help them to understand the good news of Jesus coming. And the Bereans, well, they responded wonderfully because they had already accepted the scriptures as absolutely authoritative in their lives. And this made it easier for them to see that Jesus was indeed the long looked after Messiah. And and their example should remind us of what I told you a couple of weeks ago. And that is the Bible is our source of authority in this life. It's our compass. It's got to be our guide. It's not our experiences. It's not our, our hurt feelings. It's not even church traditions, folks. It's the word of God, it's the Bible. After all, the Bible is not the word of man. It is the written and inspired word of the living God. Proverbs chapter 30 verse five says, every word of God is flawless. Well, with this in mind, things were going great in Berea. That is until the Jews who opposed Paul in Thessalonica showed up. They had apparently followed him and they quickly stirred up another lynch mob similar to the one that they had going on in Thessalonica. So Paul was forced to leave a town once again. But this time, he's heading for Athens. Luke and Timothy, who had joined them in Berea, were able to stay with Silas and shepherd this this third start, this third church start, just as they had done in Philippi. But Paul, he had to leave. And they all promised that they would join him in Athens as soon as possible. Well, once Paul gets to Athens, I think he did what anybody else would do while we were waiting for our companions. He went sightseeing. And why not? Athens was quite a city. It was unsurpassed in both architecture and the many sculptures that were were in that city. It boasted a 60,000 seat uh, stadium, Art galleries existed in in rare abundance. There were lavishly decorated music halls and respected academies lined the stone-laden streets. And even though Athens was a bit past her glory days at that time, it was still the cultural centerpiece of the entire Greek world. Wealthy families from around the world, they would send their children to Athens so that they could study because it was a university city, famous for the way that it embraced higher learning. I mean, this had been the home of Socrates and of Aristotle and of Plato. Well, I'm sure as as Paul took all of this in, he must have really enjoyed the atmosphere there. I say this because he himself had been trained in one of the prestigious university cities of that day, Tarsus. In fact, it is obvious that in Paul's education from Tarsus, it included some Greek poetry. Why do I say that? Because you're gonna see in a moment that he quoted two of their poets in his sermon. So I know that Paul was thrilled by this mind-challenging educational atmosphere that was going on in Athens. But soon, all of that excitement turned to sorrow when he saw how much idol worship was going on there. Idols were everywhere you looked. In fact, a common statement back then was, it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. And it's easy to understand how someone would make a statement like that because there were tens of thousands of idols in Paul's day. There were more idols in Athens than all the rest of of Greece combined. R.C.H. Lenski says Athens was one great altar, one great offering to the gods. Well, the more idols that the apostle Paul saw, the more upset he became. And I want you to look at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Because of the prevalence, Of all of these gods of stone or of wood or of gold or glass, whatever, Paul's spirit inside of him was deeply provoked and he became greatly distressed over what he saw. Because these idols, they made it very clear that the men and women of Athens had a great capacity for God. They knew that there was something beyond physical death. And they were seeking it, they were just seeking it in the wrong places. And every one of these false idols revealed a twisting and a distorting of that people's great capacity for God. More accurately, it was sabotaging it because Satan was obviously at work and working overtime in Athens. Well, as Paul took all of this in, God began to plant an outline of a sermon into his heart. During his walks through the city, God helped them to see exactly what it was that these people needed to hear. Paul practiced the first draft of his message by sharing his convictions in the synagogue, but he further honed it by literally taking his message out into the streets as he began to discuss his views with the Athenians in the local marketplace. Now, it may seem odd to you that Paul, a newcomer, a stranger, would discuss things with people out in the marketplace. But you must understand that in Athens, this is what the people did. This is what they did for entertainment. This is what they did for fun. Look at verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Another translation says they were about talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So the Greeks, they, they loved to discuss things. Therefore, Paul's street corner sermonettes were not just welcomed, but if you think about it, they were a brilliant approach on his part. And through these on-the-street interviews, Paul met representatives of the two main philosophical groups in that city, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that the chief end of man was pleasure and the avoidance of pain. They didn't deny the existence of gods, but they taught that the gods did not involve themselves in the affairs of men. They also believed that upon physical death, the body and the soul simply dissolved. They did not believe in an afterlife. They were the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die kind of a crowd. And I don't know about you, but I think that that Epicurean philosophy is still alive and well in our pleasure-worshipping, pain-avoiding culture today, amen? Now, the other group referred to as the Stoics, these guys were pantheists. They taught that everything is God. The stones, the trees, the birds in the air, you, me, everything. In many ways, they were just the opposite of the Epicureans because they were fatalists. They believed that since life was so filled with unavoidable good and bad, the best we can do is to grin and bear it. I mean, they prided themselves in their ability to take whatever it was that came their way. They urged moderation in life and regarded apathy as all things as the highest virtue. What a life. Think of it this way. The Epicureans said, enjoy life, and the Stoics said, endure life. Well, try to imagine, if you will, these these two proud groups gathered in the marketplace together They're wearing their philosopher's robes and they're listening to the Apostle Paul talk and they're stroking their beards. They had long beards then. They're stroking their long beards while Paul is talking and they're trying to size him up. They're kind of kicking the tires, so to speak. Well, Luke tells us that after listening for just a bit, some of them shook their heads and they called Paul a babbler. This word literally translated as seed picker. It referred to scavenger birds who went around pecking up seed and food and scraps that had fallen on the city streets in the marketplace. And by them verbalizing this designation for Paul, it meant that these guys thought of him as a mere collector of fragments of, of truth. Someone who was really not educated, which we know is not true, Someone who they thought was maybe a few bricks shy of a load, I'm not sure. And it was their judgment that all Paul had done is that he had scavenged a few choice words from some differing philosophies that he picked up along the way, and now he was using his words to try to impress them. But there were others who, who thought it would be interesting to hear what Paul had to say since he seemed to be spouting out some new truth to them that they had not heard before. And as I said earlier, the Greeks loved to discuss any kind of new truth. So they talked among themselves and they decided to give him a formal hearing before the Areopagus. This was a council in Athens who had the responsibility of supervising the education of the city, which also included controlling the many itinerant lecturers who passed through that town. And of course, Paul accepted their invitation. Could you imagine him doing anything otherwise? I'm sure that he thought it was a great opportunity, kind of like being asked to, to preach before the United States Senate. Well, as you look at what he had to say, Paul had a great introduction to his message because it enabled him to identify with his listeners in such a way that he seized their attention. He seized it immediately. Look at Acts 17, verses 22 and 23, and you'll see what I mean. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. That's brilliant. Paul's opening words didn't put them down. It didn't attack their idolatry. In fact, he sort of paid paid them a backhanded compliment. And when he spoke about the unknown God, allow me to share with you a bit of history where the origins of that term came from. I think you'll find it very, very interesting. It seems that many centuries... Before Paul arrived, a plague had broken out in Athens. And these god decided to deal with these plagues by turning a flock of sheep loose within the city. They let them run wild for a period of time and then they went to look for them. And wherever a sheep was found, they were slain and they were offered or sacrificed to a God. If it was slain near a recognized God, then they dedicated it to Zeus or Athena or or whoever. But if it were found in a place not near any idol, a new altar was erected at that spot and the lamb was sacrificed there to what? An unknown God. Well, these idols gave Paul this great idea for his introduction. So he said, this God that I want to talk to you about I want to tell you about this unknown God. And and, and as as I said, his introduction, it really, really captured their attention. So with all these educated Stoics and Epicureans having their ears perked up, he begins to preach a short but a very powerful message and it's recorded in verses 24 through 34. I told you it'd be a while before we got there. Referring to the unknown God, Paul says this, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their preappointed times And the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will, give, he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now as we dissect Paul's sermon here, it contains a powerful truth that we need to hear today and it really comes out in one major point. Paul says, listen, your unknown God, he made himself known in three different ways. And Paul first says the unknown God has made himself known in creation. Paul makes clear that the evidence of God's power the evidence of God's wisdom can be seen in no matter which direction you look. Because the unknown God made the world and he made everything in it. Listen, our God is not like other gods because he was not created by man. In fact, as the originator of all things, He made the stone and the wood and the precious metals that the Greeks used to create their thousands of other little gods, as well as the temples that house them. Paul went on to say that unlike the Greek gods, the unknown God did not need their sacrifices. In fact, no real God would, because to need anything would make that being less than a God. And Paul was right. God doesn't need our gifts. He gives us our needs, right? Our very life, our very breath, everything we have is from God. He is our sustainer. It's not the other way around, folks. This is because, as Paul says in verse 26, that the unknown God made them. And before they had a chance to object, he pointed out that this concept had been acknowledged by their own poets, a Stoic philosopher named Eratos said, we are his offspring. He used that in his sermon. Uh, and to help me with this, Epimenides said this, Fred, Fred and I are always trying to, where's Pastor Fred? We're always trying to figure, there you are. We're always trying to figure out the proper pronunciations on these. So we have some resources that will help us say these names and sometimes you just get what you get, okay? The, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about uh, the ladies that had a dispute What were their names? I forget it. Somebody came up to me and said, I was always told it was pronounced this way. I said, well, I thank you very much. Then you do that. I'll call it my way. But anyway, you get what you pay for, folks. (laughs) Epimenides had said that in the Creator, we live and move and have our being. Paul used that in his sermon as well. So let me ask you something. Do you think that this part of Paul's sermon needs to be preached today? Absolutely, absolutely it does, because just like those Epicurean eggheads, most of the movers and the shakers in our culture either don't believe in God, or they embrace a very, very warped and twisted understanding of who he is, amen? In fact, many of our in our world have, have accepted the theories of Charles Darwin as fact, and if you have, I'll pray for you. But remember, Darwin foolishly suggested that the intricate beauty of creation just happened. His evolutionary theory says that all of this amazing world that we live in, including you and me, we were just accidents, that we were a part of a a circle of life and that there was no creator God, that there, there was no divine author. And this is the message that is taught in public schools and college campuses all over our nation and all over the world. So we need to hear this part of Paul's sermon to prepare us for our own aeropagus experiences if we're ever granted one. You see, the fact is there is more evidence for a creator today than there has ever been before. The more that mankind has delved into science during the past 2000 years the more that they have discovered facts that point to the existence of an intelligent and a compassionate designer this is because it says in romans 1:20 for since the creation of the world god's invisible qualities his eternal power his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse Think of it this way. God, the creator of everything, he loves visual aids. He loves putting things all around us in a created order to teach us things about himself, about his heart. So when we look and when we study creation, we learn about God. Journalist and lecturer Hendrik Van Loon responded to God in creation after his first visit to the Grand Canyon when he said this. I came an atheist, I leave a believer by looking at the Grand Canyon. And more and more, true scientists today are following his example. Oh, you won't hear them talk about it much in their educational circles, but most scientists now concede that the universe began suddenly in a flash of energy and light. They believe that there was a cause, and folks, if there was a cause, that means that there was a causer, Amen. After studying the stars, former agnostic astronomer Robert Jastrow was forced to concede when he wrote that although details may differ, the essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. And listen, science may call it a big bang theory, but if there was a big bang, it was God's thundering voice that called this place into creation, amen? And so after looking closely at the created order, more and more scientists now are shooting holes into Darwin's theory that we have accepted as fact. And I really love this next one. This is from a man named David Ropp, who is the curator of the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. He writes this. We are now about 120 years after Darwin and have knowledge of fossil record has been greatly expanded and our knowledge, and the knowledge of fossil record has been greatly expanded, excuse me, We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. We have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. What the fossil record does not show is that in rocks dated back some 570 million years, there is a sudden appearance of nearly all the animal phyla, and they appear fully formed without a trace of the evolutionary ancestors that Darwinists require. To put that in terms that you can understand, he's calling out Darwin and telling him that his theory is not accurate. So yes, this part of Paul's sermon is still preachable. It is still a message that needs to be heard today because the more we look at creation, the more we will be able to to know about God. Well, it's at this point in his message when Paul goes on to say, the unknown God has also made himself known in the human heart. Look at verse 27, where he talks about God creating the world, including designing and programming human beings. He says this, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. In other words, God designed each of us with a need to know him and a hunger to find him. In fact, back in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 tells us, he, God, made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into the human heart. He has built in within each one of us a God-shaped hole in the midst of our being. In fact, I've heard of at least two more scientific studies that confirm this. All people are hardwired both to need God and to seek God. And when we we respond to this God-given programming to seek our creator, we find him. Because Paul is right. God is not far from anyone. In his best-selling book, The Body, the late Chuck Colson recounts a true story of a girl named Irina Ratashinskaya. She lived in Russia during the days before the fall of the Iron Curtain, back when Nikita Khrushchev ruled the Soviet Union. One day while she was in school, Irina looked out the window and she saw it starting to snow and she yearned to be out in the snow. She wanted to be out with her friends, building snowmen and having snowball fights and sledding down the hill, instead of being stuck in school, listening to their boring lectures. In fact, while the snow was falling, she was in the middle of her least favorite class, the compulsory atheist instruction. You see, Irina had been created with a sharp mind. And so she noticed that in Russia, everybody seemed to be against God. The teachers, the headmaster, the people on the radio, the government officials, the whole country And this just didn't seem fair to her. After all, they told them on the playground they were not allowed to gang up on one person, and yet her entire nation, she thought, why are they ganging up on God? It also seemed odd to her that they pitched such a furious battle against someone who said that he existed. This didn't make sense to her at all. She thought, if God didn't exist, then why go to all the trouble? God doesn't exist her instructor said again, only silly, ignorant women believe in him. And Irina thought, can't they tell that they are giving themselves away? Adults tell you that there are no ghosts. They tell you that there are no gremlins. They tell you once or twice and that's it. But with God, they tell you over and over and over again. He must exist. He must be powerful in order for them to fear him so greatly. And with that logic in mind, She returned to thinking about the snow and then she uttered her attempt, her first attempt at a prayer to this unknown God. She reached out to God, who as Paul said, is not far from any one of us. And she prayed, God, if you do not exist, we wouldn't have to listen to this lecture. So it's your fault that we're sitting here missing the snow. She said, if you're so powerful, Make it snow. Well, the one true God, the God who created the universe and everything in it, he answered her prayer. And big white snowflakes fell for three entire days. It was the city's largest snowfall in 60 years. School was canceled, allowing Irina and her friends to have a grand old time. Later, as she felt the, the, the giant snowflakes from heaven falling on her face, Irina thought about this God that her teachers denied, the one who could make snow fall from heaven through official communist airspace. (laughs) I love that part of the story. She reached out to God, the, the God who she knew in the depths of her heart because God had placed that desire in her was real. And he reached back to her. He sent that snow, and then he guided her to places where she could learn more about his son. Well, you'll be glad to know that Irina eventually became a Christian, and she got a hold of a Bible. All this because the, because Paul said in his sermon, the unknown God has made himself known in the human heart. Now I think that all of us here at High Point need to hear this fact, because I've heard that some of you are uncomfortable with personal evangelism, as I've been talking about it now for two months. One of the reasons is there's a discomfort that you think that you are all on your own when you're sharing your faith. And if you were, I can admit that would be a a scary thought. But the fact is, we are never alone. Never God has always gone before us in every witnessing encounter you've ever had the opportunity to be a part of. And not only this, but God has hardwired every human being to seek him. So when we share our faith, I want you to look at it differently. We are just helping them to find what it is that they are seeking for. We are simply joining God in his work. And always remember, God has made himself known in the human heart. And if we act upon that knowledge, that instinct, that programming, God makes himself known in other ways, just like he did with this Russian communist girl, Irina. Well, this leads to Paul's final point, found in verse 31. It's where he reminded the council what he had no doubt said several times while he was out preaching in the Athenian marketplace. The unknown God has made himself known through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul said that these thousands of idols, these thousands of of graven images were false, but that God had revealed himself in an image, one image, the image of his only son. And Paul would later write, In Colossians 1.15, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Paul does what anyone who is sharing the good news does. You bring it all back to Jesus. You put the focus right back on Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about that person, it's about Jesus. Scott, will you please come forward, help us to prepare for communion. There were two first grade buddies playing with each other, playing out in the field with each other. And one of the boys said, you know, I had a really good time at Vacation Bible School this morning, why don't you go with me tomorrow? And the friend responded by asking, what's Vacation Bible School? And the little boy replied, we have it at church. We play games, and we sing, and we learn a lot about Jesus Christ. And the other, his friend asked, who is Jesus Christ? And then in the wisdom, surely born by the Spirit of God, the six-year-old answered this way, Jesus Christ is the best picture of God that has ever been took. He was spot on. This little guy unknowingly was spot on because the clearest way that God has made himself known is through his son, Jesus the Christ. In Jesus, God came down to our level so that we could experience his sacrificial love. Jesus was born to turn the world right side up by dying for our sins. And he displayed his power to be able to do that when he rose from the dead three days later with resurrection power. And just as Paul told that Greek audience, we will be judged someday on how we respond to this. If we repent and we put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, we will have eternal life. But if we reject so great a salvation, we will face eternity separated from God, the one true God, the one who has made himself known to all men through creation. Today, we're gonna make Jesus known by participating in communion together. We are going to follow Jesus' command to always remember what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. This is the very thing that Paul and others throughout history have given their lives to do, to proclaim Jesus and his sacrifice to a lost and a dying world. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward so we can pass out the communion emblems. Communion is a time where we remember why Jesus came. He came, it was his mission to... uh, save us from the bondage of sin. But in order for him to do that, a sacrifice was required. So he became the sacrifice for our sin. And it was his shed blood that atones or or covers. It's the cleansing agent for our sin. Jesus died on that cross while carrying all the sins of the world upon him. Every sin that has ever been committed, every sin that that ever will be committed. But he didn't stay dead because he rose three days later with resurrection power and through his death and through his resurrection, we are reconciled to God the Father and we are given a new kind of a life here on earth but we are also promised eternal life in the presence of God when our time on this earth is over. It is such a costly and such a wonderful gift. And yet he offers it to us freely, but it is something that we must choose to receive. And when we receive salvation, it allows us to rest in his presence. It allows us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt where our future lies. And we need to be reminded of this regularly, and that's why I believe that that Jesus established communion or the Lord's Supper, what we refer to as Holy Communion. It's when we take a moment of time to remember all of the blessings that God has given to us through His Son, Jesus. I believe that it is vitally important for me to say that this is a sacred moment, and therefore it should always be treated as such. We're not going through religious motions this morning. We're not going through a church tradition this morning. This is an activity that no one wants to enter into without a reverence for God, or to do so in an unworthy manner as we are warned in the scriptures. In fact, the Bible offers us clear instruction on this in 1 Corinthians 11:27. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So if we follow these scriptures, this is a time when we must all examine ourselves. Do we have unconfessed sin? Are we harboring unforgiveness against another person? Are we carrying around attitudes that are in opposition to the truth of God that run contrary to how God would want us to live? Is our heart in alignment with the Lord or are we in rebellion right now against what it is he wants to accomplish in our life? Most importantly, the question is, are you saved? Have you received salvation, this free gift that Jesus offers? If not, now is the time to make things right. Now is the time to confess these things before God and repent of them. Now is the time to ask Jesus into your heart as not to participate in this sacred moment in an unworthy way, in an unworthy way. Before we take communion together, we're going to have a moment of silent prayer and reflection before God. During this time, all you're going to hear is the music playing softly behind me like it is right now. And I want everyone in this place to reach out to God in prayer, in your own words and in your own way. And please don't worry about how you say things because God reads your heart. He clearly understands the desires of your heart. And if you're not a believer here today, and you've never received salvation before, you can do so during this time before we take communion. You just acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the only way to God the Father. Thank him for dying on the cross for you, then ask him to forgive you of your sin. uh, Offer him lordship over your life today by accepting his salvation. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of Jesus, they shall be saved. And today can be the start of a new kind of life for you here on this earth where your past stays where it was. It's your past. Your past is now forgiven. And you are now given a fresh start. And I don't know of anybody who couldn't use a fresh start. The Bible says when you accept Christ, you become a new creation if you desire that today all you need to do is express it to the Lord in prayer and he is faithful to wipe away all our transgressions praise God and then you can participate in this moment in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice that he made for you but it is equally important for me to say once again for everyone in this place if your heart is not right before the Lord. And if you are not willing to make things right, I would warn you against receiving communion today because you do not want to eat or drink judgment to yourself as the scripture warns. So everyone in this place, let's take a moment to meditate in God's presence. Let's make sure that none of us are participating in this sacred moment in an unworthy manner. Let's bow our heads in silent prayer and meditation. Father you've heard our words, most importantly you have read our hearts this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you Father for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for salvation, a new life in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit. Father and I we ask you bless these emblems we're about to receive and bless all of those who are participating in it this morning, and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 22, verses 14, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, And as you eat this bread this morning be reminded of the bruised and the battered body of the lord and that by his stripes you are healed you may eat the bread verse 20 says in the same way after the supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you and as you drink this juice this morning i want you to be reminded of the precious blood of Jesus." that was shed to atone for your and my sin. You may drink the juice. Would you all please stand to your feet as we sing.
1: The blood that Jesus shed for me. Way back on Calvary, That gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power, for it reaches.
0: Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that you can take broken people and make them whole. That you can give us a purpose for living far beyond anything we could ever concoct on our own. And that we can live this life on this earth with a redeemer, a savior who guides us and directs us in this life and strengthens us to do the things that you've called us to do. Father, I ask your blessings upon this congregation, every person in this place today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would strengthen them in their inner person, their inner being, Lord God, that they would stand boldly for Jesus Christ in this world that seems to be so ashamed of him. Lord, let us be bold proclaimers of the love of Jesus. Fathers, we go our separate ways today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places that we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let those conversations be designed to build people up and not to tear them down. And Lord, let us shine brightly in a very dark world, the love of Jesus Christ. So much so that People will come up and ask us what's different about us, and we can tell them about what you have done in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, I pray until we gather together again next week that you would keep us safe, keep us safe from disease, from accidents that might befall us until we can join back together again and worship you as a church family in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this day. Thank you for the presence of your spirit Thank you for the truth of your word. Now, as we go, Father, let us apply it to our lives. And Father, as we leave, let us go in love the kind of love that you exhibited when you walked on this earth. Let us be purveyors of that love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here.